Welcome back to a special bonus episode and a pandemic update on the Medical Republic podcast. It's the 13th of May, 2020. I'm Francine Crimmins and I'm joined by my fellow journos and I might throw it to the rest of the team to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Felicity Nelson. Uh, We're now in our second month of working from home and today we've invited back our resident COVID-19 blogger for the latest developments. It's Bianca Nogrady. Hello, thank you for having me back on the show. Um, And yes, uh, the Medical Republic is running a COVID-19 live blog and has been doing for a couple of months nearly now. So um, yeah, if you just go onto the Medical Republic homepage and then have a look for the big live and the flashing red dot, that's where you'll find the live blog. And we also have many other people at TMR who are staying across all of the COVID-19 developments. And one of them is our political and clinical reporter, Penny Durham. Uh, Penny, welcome back to the show. We're very glad you could join us to shed some more light on what's been happening in the last week. Hi, guys. Nice to be back in the, well, virtual broom cupboard. (laughs) So, Bianca, we might kick off with some of what you've been covering on our live blog in the last week. And maybe just to start with, um, if we look at some of what the Federal Health Minister, Greg Hunt, um, has announced in recent times, particularly in the area of the importance of mental health uh, during the pandemic, what's been happening there? Well, Australia is about to get its first ever chief mental health officer, which I think is a pretty massive step in the right direction, given that generally speaking, I think Australia's track record on looking after mental health is fairly um, parlous. So this is a a really, really great development. Um, And the person who's going to be appointed to the position is Associate Professor Ruth Vine, who is the former Chief Psychiatrist of Victoria. Um, We don't know a lot about it at the moment. It was announced um, or... Uh, the Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt talked about her appointment this morning on Sky News and really talked about the fact that, you know, this shows uh, the role or the, I guess, the importance of mental health, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly in a situation where we have a massive economic downturn. Um, And I think there've been some quite scary statistics around about the rate of suicides during this pandemic. I I don't have those figures to hand, incidentally, nor did did, um, Greg Hunt this morning when he was on radio. But yeah, there's certainly a lot of concern about the mental impacts, mental health impacts of this pandemic. So having uh, Professor Vine appointed to this position is... I think a really, really good start. And so COVID-19 and obesity, I know there's been a lot of chatter about how these two things are connected. What's the latest on that, Bianca? Well, this was an interesting um, bit of correspondence from the US, uh, which was published in The Lancet. And their argument is that because obesity is so prevalent in the United States, um, as it would be in Australia, um, it may actually be skewing the demographic of severe COVID-19 cases towards younger age groups. So in parts of the world where and um, you, know, you do have um, less obesity, it's more likely that the severe cases are going to be most um, presenting most commonly in uh, the elderly people, whereas in the US, you know, we've heard reports of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s are dying from this disease or presenting with really, really severe illness. And they were suggesting that this could be related to the fact that um, that there is so much more obesity in the US. So they were basically just looking at um, data from 265 patients who were admitted to intensive care. This was at six different hospitals across the US. So they did get quite a good um, sort of, I guess, geographic spread. And they found a significant inverse 
correlation between the um, age and BMI so that younger individuals who presented with severe COVID-19 were significantly more likely to be obese than older individuals presenting with severe COVID-19. And um, there's a lot of work now coming out trying to really assess the, um, I guess, the impact of comorbidities, obesity being one of these. And the AMA actually did a fact file last week. I think Dr. Chris um, Zapala did a fact file looking at what do we understand about the risk factors for more serious illness. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's obesity, it's hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, which, you know, there's there's some correlations there or some connections there, some physiological connections. So, uh, I mean, I haven't seen any data sort of analysis on this in Australia yet, but given that I think for a while there we were like the second fattest nation on earth or something, I th- we, were, we were certainly fairly close behind the US in terms of rates of obesity. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do see similar trends in Australia. Is there much talk yet, Bianca, about... Uh, the relationship between obesity and other research that is showing how COVID-19 is causing this, you know, multi-systemic inflammatory response? Yeah, the question of inflammation is a really interesting one. And there's a lot, I think, um, pointing to uh, inflammation being a kind of key disease process with COVID-19. Just in terms of, for example, the biomarkers that are showing up in patients with severe COVID-19, I think C-reactive protein, which is a marker for inflammation. Um, I think lactate dehydrogenase is another biomarker that's that's coming up. Um, And, you know, the the kind of clots and strokes, and again, I'm kind of getting to the limit of my kind of um, biological knowledge, my physiological knowledge here, but there's definitely... um, I think a lot of interest in how what's connecting all of those things, the strokes, the obesity, the hypertension, the um, uh, well, and, and also the situation with these hyper-inflammatory states in some children that get COVID-19, which I think Penny's going to talk about. There's a lot of interest in what, what's the kind of common factor here, and inflammation seems to be a possible um, culprit for that. And um, one of the pressing questions, uh, Bianca, during this pandemic has been whether people who have recovered from COVID-19 continue to test positive. I know there was a preprint on this from China recently. Um, Bianca, can you talk about that one a bit? Well, this is this is a really important question because this, you know, there's always a concern of whether you can get reinfected. Um, and I think there was initially some anecdotal reports about possible reinfection, but this study suggests that it's not necessarily reinfection. It's just that the virus really hangs around for a lot longer than we previously thought. And when you think at the moment, you know, you, you, there's the two-week quarantine period, it may be that that's actually not long enough, certainly for some patients. So this was some data from... Uh, 414 patients uh, at a hospital in China. So they were discharged um, after having two consecutive negative PCR tests a day apart, which is fairly standard. But then um, in China at the time, they had set up that they had to remain in a designated quarantine facility for two weeks after that point before being sent home, which with hindsight, very sensible decision because what they discovered was about one in six of these patients actually retested positive during that um, post-discharge quarantine. So they were tested every three to five days. Uh, They did nasopharyngeal and anal swabs. 
preferably in that order. Um, and then they were also tested weekly after being sent home. And uh, they found that, yeah, as a, about 16.7% of patients retested positive after their, their discharge. But there were some who actually retested positive a third time after this discharge. So what they were suggesting was that maybe that this re, it's like a re-emergence of PCR positivity doesn't necessarily mean that they are still infectious, but somehow the the virus is basically is sort of cycling between this dormant state and this reactivation because some of these patients did actually represent with symptoms. So it's not just that you know maybe the you know the virus is kind of you know reemerging into their kind of nasopharyngeal area or the you know other parts of the body, but it, it's actually that it's reactivating and it's causing them to to develop symptoms again. So it does, you know, raise a lot of questions about are we discharging or are we kind of, is the quarantine long enough? Should we be testing people for longer? And this does um, make me think of that case. There was um, the single case that recently came out, I think it was South Australia, uh, where they'd had a long period of no cases and of zero cases. And then uh, it was a chap who got back from the UK at the end of March had some symptoms. He was in quarantine for two weeks anyway because he, you know, he, he stuck with the quarantine and then came out of quarantine. Had symptoms, but nothing that made him think of COVID nineteen. And then he was tested like a week ago and found to be positive. And there was a lot of question of, you know, and he'd been pretty strict with self isolation even after his quarantine. So, you know, it was the question of did he get exposed? Did he get reinfected? Um, but this study does suggest it may not necessarily be reinfection as much as almost a re-emergence or a reactivation of the virus. Um, and are we sure that they're actually picking up infectious virus there? They're not, you know, RNA debris left over from the viral infection? Well, this, yeah, the authors actually do address that question of whether this means that they're infectious. And they say that because they're just picking up viral RNA, not live virus, it doesn't necessarily mean that patients are still infectious you know, in these kind of four, six-week periods after, um, after I guess, they initially get infected. So that's that would be the next question. I mean, really what a study now needs to do is to do live virus sampling um, of all patients who are discharged, you know, on a regular basis for potentially, you know, a month or two after discharge to monitor to see whether they are um, infectious, whether it's just simply viral debris. So, yeah, the short answer is we don't know. COVID-19 cases are down in Australia, but there's now talk of a second wave that, you know, could potentially emerge now that we're coming out of lockdown. So in preparation for that, what sort of clinical guidance is there on, you know, managing the disease, particularly in primary care? Well, we're really lucky in Australia. We've got this National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, which is a kind of multi-expert um, task force that's constantly looking at the evidence that's coming out, which would be one heck of a job. I mean, we're trying to do that at the moment, obviously, just with this live blog and, and on the Medical Republic generally trying to keep track of all of the new data. And there is so much coming out. So I don't envy them that task because they're actually doing it with a view to advising doctors on what to do. But, you know, it, they, they're, they're developing or they're constantly updating what they call these living guidelines, which is kind of the only way you can handle this pandemic is to is to kind of have this is a, a bit of a movable feast. Um, so the latest update, which they put out last week, um, actually does 
include a recommendation that adults with moderate COVID-19 can be given prophylactic anticoagulants. And this is recognising that um, there seemed to be quite a high incidence of venous thrombosis in people who otherwise wouldn't have that condition, who may not actually show symptoms of venous thrombosis um, of DVT. So they've suggested in these adults with moderate COVID-19 uh, that they could be treated with low molecular weight heparin, um, unless, obviously, big unless, there is a risk of major bleeding. Um, they did look at more, well, they, they are currently looking at whether to then move that also to high-dose venous um, prophylaxis in patients who have more severe or critical COVID-19, but they're still working on that, so that there's no... Um, there's no decision on that in particular. But, yeah, it does, I guess, add again to this growing body of evidence that um, stroke and pulmonary embolism and DVT seem to be quite critical, um, seem to be contributing to both, you know, to death and, mor and um, morbidity in patients with severe COVID-19. Um, and also, you know, we've heard about how uh, there's evidence of elevated D-dimer levels in patients with severe disease and not only elevated levels but uh, levels that correlate with severity of disease. So there's definitely something going on in terms of thrombosis. So this, this um, recommendation about sort of preventive anticoagulants uh, does play to that. And speaking of that, there's one relatively new development that's happening, particularly in children. And Penny, you're across this development. What's going on in this space? Uh, yeah, it's uh, still full of surprises, this virus, and um, not particularly nice ones. So the effect of COVID-19 on kids is something that has been really interesting, mostly up to now at least. Children and teens have been getting away pretty much scot-free, and um, <clears throat> both in that there are fewer cases detected in children and the mortality is virtually zero, and the mortality rate just goes up with every age group. Um, which is unlike influenza, which is very bad for baby immune systems. But with COVID, generally, an immature immune system seems to be an advantage. And um, just recently, fairly recently, some reports have come out of a syndrome in children that looks like it could be a complication of COVID that causes multi-system inflammation and shock. Uh, a letter in The Lancet that I think you blogged about, Bianca, described a cluster in London in April of eight children, which grew to 20, who presented with, at the hospital with fever, rash, conjunctivitis, abdominal pain, GI symptoms, swollen tongue, papillae, uh, peripheral edema, pain in their extremities, who all then uh, went into shock. And they needed a whole lot of interventions and support, including IV immunoglobulin, which is the standard treatment for Kawasaki's disease. And some of the, these kids had inflammation in their coronary arteries and in their hearts. One of them developed cardiac arrhythmia and died of a cerebrovascular infarction. And uh, they, they, had, uh, they were tested for a bunch of things and they had elevated C-reactive protein and D-dimers, among other things, showing inflammation and clotting. And after that, there, was, there were reports of similar presentations in New York and several deaths in young kids. And I think they're up to about 100 cases of this now. So the weird thing is that none of these kids had typical COVID symptoms. As you were saying, Bianca, um, SARS-CoV-2 is inducing a lot of inflammation, the old cytotoxic storm, and causing a lot of clotting, which is leading to tissue damage and organ failure and death. But in adults, this starts with respiratory symptoms and progressing to pneumonia and acute respiratory distress. And these kids have had none of those typical presentations. What they do have is a lot like Kawasaki's disease, which is a multi-system vasculitis or 
inflammation of the blood vessels, mostly affects very small children. And the cause, even though this was identified about 50 years ago, the cause is still mysterious, but it seems to have a strong genetic component and it may be triggered by infections. In Australia, there are, I believe, a few hundred cases a year. It's way more prevalent in Japan and Korea, thanks to a genetic variant that's common there. A couple of things to note about the children in London, uh, they were significantly overweight and most were Afro-Caribbean. You mentioned obesity earlier, Bianca. Of course, obesity is a well-known risk factor in adults, probably because it's pro-inflammatory. And as for ethnicity, more complicated, uh, non-white populations have been shown to have significantly worse outcomes from COVID-19, but a lot of that is being put down to social reasons rather than genetic. So is this actually Kawasaki's disease with a COVID trigger? Some experts are saying, no, it's very similar, but it doesn't quite fit, especially the age range, because that's Kawasaki is normally a thing in kids under seven, and this is applying to some kids in their teens. Others are saying that it's an overlap and there could be a kind of spectrum of related conditions. And is it actually from COVID? Are the children nearly all tested negative for COVID, at least initially? So on the face of it, that suggests it's something else. Um, But some of these kids then actually tested negative for COVID, but were later found to have antibodies and some later tested positive for COVID. Um, Having a negative PCR test and being positive for antibodies is something... Uh, an interesting result in children. There's some research that's soon to come out that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, but it'll have something to say about that. And I think the reliability of PCR testing might be a bit of a sleeper issue with this whole pandemic. Um, But back to these kids, if it's not due to COVID-19, it's funny that it's popping up now in places where COVID is very prevalent um, and not so much in places where typical Kawasaki is is prevalent. And then on the other hand, if it is COVID, it's also funny that it's popping up now several months into the pandemic and that this wasn't actually observed earlier on. Um, Basically, it's it's a kind of, it's scary, but it's still incredibly rare. And especially in Australia, where we have so few COVID-19 cases anyway, um, it's probably not a good reason not to send your kids back to school. And uh, if if that's alarmed you and you want a calming literature review to read to remind you how rare it is for this virus to affect children even at all, you can go to don'tforgetthebubbles.com. And Penny, you just pointed out that Kawasaki is more prevalent in certain populations, particularly in Japan and Korea. I was wondering if we know anything about if Kawasaki-like presentations also increased in those two countries where we already know that there's um, a higher level of Kawasaki-like uh, illness in the paediatric population. Well, yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, in Japan and Korea, which have obviously had significant COVID um, numbers, there haven't been any cases of this kind of presentation yet uh, that have been published about or reported on, which does suggest that there's definitely something going on. If it is Kawasaki, it's coming through a very different pathway uh, and it could just be better to refer to it as a hyperinflammatory multi-system syndrome. Thanks for that, Penny. And that's it for our pandemic update today. But you can catch us next week at the same time. And for anyone that wants to keep up to date in the meantime, Bianca, how can people reach you to chat about the live blog if they have any comments or tips to give you? Uh, you can email me at bianca at biancanogrady.com. 
Um, yes. And if you want to send chocolate donations, message me privately. I'll give you my address. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more from the Medical Republic, you can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or any podcatcher of your choice. Just search for the Medical Republic. Also, before you go, I should mention that we're doing our first ever live webinar on Thursday night. It'll be business advisor David Darm answering GP questions about JobKeeper, which I know that some GPs are finding quite confusing. To register, go to medicalrepublic.com.au slash category slash webinars. Okay, I know that's a mouthful. I'm working on getting a better URL. Um, but if you forget that, just flick me an email at felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au and I'll get you a pass. Um, thanks for listening.